0: You're listening to Tech Tank, a bi-weekly podcast from the Brookings Institution, exploring the most consequential technology issues of our time. From racial bias and algorithms to the future of work, Tech Tank takes big ideas and makes them accessible. Thank you for joining the Tech Tank podcast. I am Dr. Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. I'm also the co-host of this podcast, so I'm glad that you've chimed back in. Listen, if you think that English language, online, mis- or disinformation is a problem in the current political climate, well, I've got some bad news for you. We're going to talk about it a lot today on this episode. We as a society are even more ill-equipped to deal with it, In non-English languages, the Facebook papers leaked by whistleblower Francis Hagan in 2021 showed that 87% of Facebook's global budget, now meta, of course, for time spent on classifying mis- or disinformation was spent on U.S. content. Nonprofit Avaz has found that while 70% of misinformation in English on these platforms was flagged, only 30% of comparable content in Spanish got the same treatment. Let me say that again, 30%. Even in automated models like AI that process non-English content, there still were lags in identifying it. Folks, you know we're having this podcast because we're very close to the midterm elections and it's time for us to take a closer look at how Spanish language misinformation and disinformation are affecting our Latina community. It is. A poll by the Kaiser Family Foundation found that Latinx respondents experienced significantly more vaccine hesitancy compared to white peers and almost half of Spanish speaking voters in Florida encountered misinformation on Facebook in days leading up to the 2020 elections. We gotta do something about it. But first we have to understand that this conversation is real. So, joining me today, as we talk more about this topic of what's at stake for Spanish language misinformation and disinformation, are my friends. Gabriel Sanchez is a David M. Rubinstein Fellow in Governance Studies at the Brookings Institution. He's also a professor of Political Science and the founding Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, endowed Chair in Health Policy at the University of New Mexico. And Nora Benavides is Senior Counsel and Director of Digital Justice and Civil Rights at Free Press where she manages the organization's efforts around platform and media accountability to defend against digital threats to democracy. Thanks, Gabe. Thanks, Nora, for coming on the podcast today.
1: Oh, It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks for having me. This is a great conversation, an important one.
2: Thanks, Thanks, Nora. Oh, my (laughs) gosh. Anytime I can uh, have a conversation with you, I I always love it.
0: I know I'm, I'm a huge fan. I've known ah. free press for years and you. So listen, <laughs> let's jump into this. Gabe, I'm gonna start with you. Past literature has shown that misinformation and disinformation does not work in a vacuum and that different groups tend to be receptive to different kinds of messaging depending on their own pre-existing backgrounds and beliefs. And so when we start talking about the Latina X community in the U.S., I think it's important to recognize that what we're talking about is a group of really diverse people from a range of political backgrounds. You know, it's that age old saying we are not homogenous, right, when it comes to our diverse communities. So I'd love to hear from you more context on how these political leanings or beliefs are similar or different for the Latino community in the U.S., And what are some of the key factors that influence some of those beliefs? So let's start there. How are we different within the Latina community? I'm looking, I'm taking ownership like I'm Latina. I'm not. (laughs) Just so people, if you look me up on the census, I'm Black, African-American, not hispanic descent, but I do feel allyship. So I get to say that with great privilege um, on this podcast. So help me understand the political leanings and beliefs and how they're similar or different for the Latino community?
1: Well, I appreciate the question and the setup, and and you're a strong ally to the Latino community, so we welcome you. We welcome (laughs) you to the team. Thank you. No, I I appreciate the context, because often, you know, in these conversations, we tend to overgeneralize about populations. Um, And Latinos, as you noted, are a very diverse electorate with important variation across a lot of the different demographics. So, So let me try to break this down for folks before we jump into the misinformation conversation. I mean, one of the things to start with is, there's variation even in how Latinos prefer to identify themselves or be referred to. In fact, you know, despite Latinx or Latin being highly popular across a lot of political networks, uh, I see often used in the mass media, less than 5% of the Latino or Hispanic community actually utilizes this term to identify themselves. In fact, we ask that question in every single survey that I run, because it's part of cultural competency, right? Trying to meet Latino voters where they're at and how they like to identify themselves. Um, So to kind of talk about political context, Let's go back a little bit and talk about the Obama election years, uh, which we were kind of characterizing as being overwhelmingly Democratic support among Latinos uh, for Democratic candidates. And then we we kind of think about those years as almost like 80 percent Democratic vote share among Latino voters. So that's kind of the high point, if you will. And then, you know, we think about 2016 and Latino strong reaction to Trump's campaign that really racialized immigrants and Latino immigrants in particular, And that led many Latinos to have at least a perception among a lot in the mass media that they had a solidified relationship with the Democratic Party. And and in that election, our data suggested just under 80 percent of Latinos voted for Hillary Clinton in that election. So we're thinking about really high, not quite monolithic, but getting close to that Democratic support. Um, And a big part of that was during the 2016 election. uh, A lot of my work has identified that Latinos had a a kind of acute sense of underlying racial identity. That was a powerful factor impacting support for democratic candidates and in some of the academic articles i've published thinking about that time frame we found that racial identity among latinos rivaled even partisanship and impact on latino political behavior but then you know we look at 2020 and trump's improvement with latino vote share in that election cycle reminded us that latinos continue to be somewhat malleable politically and that there's a lot of variation uh, within the Latino community in terms of their vote choice. And in in essence, there's not a strong relationship with either party among Latinos, which gives both party an opportunity uh, to try to court and and increase their their, segment of the Latino electorate who supports their candidates. Uh, When we think about uh, the 2020 election, the pandemic, as we all remember, really forced President Trump at that time to pivot away from campaign messages focused on immigration and really anti-Latino or immigrant rhetoric and talk about COVID. And this proved to be huge for the GOP support from Latinos Does this movement away from anti-Latino immigration rhetoric really help Trump and Republicans improve their performance among Latinos. And again, reminded us that Latinos are a very diverse electorate with greater uh, Republican support among some specific segments of the electorate. I'll close with this question with just a few examples uh, for, for you in the audience. Um, one is we, we always like to think as political scientists about the gender gap yep. and the difference in, in terms of gender. Um, And that holds for Latinos. Latinas tend to be more likely to vote democratically than Latino males and support progressive policies. And so if we think about that, that's probably and something I'll probably refer to later, the biggest cleavage, if you will, among Latinos is based on gender. Um, Some that I know folks think a lot about, we think about national origin among the Latino population and Cuban support for Democrats, according to the most recent polling that I've taken a look at, suggests that democratic support among Cubans is gonna be 20% lower than Latinos overall which speaks to a big outlier in terms of states of Florida. Obviously, the Cuban population has a lot to do with what we see in terms of a much greater likelihood of of majority uh, Republican support among Latinos in Florida. And finally, we cannot discuss the Latino electorate without discussing age. Uh, Latinos are approximately 15 years younger than non-Hispanic whites in median age. And I think the median age of eligible voters for Latinos is 39 years of age. That means half Of Latino eligible voters are under the age of 39. That's nine years younger than the median age of all eligible adults in this country. Um, And that's an important thing for us to think about because we all know younger voters, including Latinos, tend to be more liberal, more likely to vote Democratic than older Americans. But the same is true uh, for Latinos as it is with everybody else. The key with youth is turnout. Younger Latinos, like all Americans, tend to be uh, less likely to vote. Uh, So hopefully that context helps give us a little bit of the variation among Latinos, things to be thinking about as we transition to talk more about this topic.
0: Well, you know, and I want to stay there for just a moment, because obviously this feeds into the discussion we're having today because it creates like open season. Right. When you have such diversity within the Latino community, you know, 2022 elections are just as contentious as the 2022. I mean, here in Virginia. We've got a Latina candidate against the uh, Democratic incumbent. And I found it to be interesting because it sort of matches alongside what you're talking about in terms of age and appeal. You know, despite this particular candidate having, I think, some very staunch conservative um, uh, uh, opinions and ideologies. Question for you is. Does the undercount of Latinos in the census or other political realms sort of also play into this, game? Because I know you've written about that as well, because what I hear from you is we've got the diversity of the Latino community, but there's potentially the undercount of the Latino community, too, which also makes it, again, open season when it comes to appeal by both Democrats and Republicans.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that that undercount in the census and then transitioning to conversations about redistricting, which is obviously based on. All the census numbers is critical in a number of ways. I mean, structurally, if there's an undercount of Latinos, that means that maps that were generated based on that census, uh, depiction of the Latino population, right, potentially minimize Latino influence at the ballot box across a number of different jurisdictions, right? So that, that undercount in the census is key for those reasons. But also in thinking about misinformation and all these attitudinal dimensions, I think a lot of Latinos are very acutely aware of the fact that the census undercounted them, the context in which the census was underfunded, all the discussion about including citizenship status on the census, Latinos are a smart community. They realize that most of that was really aimed at undercutting their political voice and power. So then when you transition and you've got folks like myself that try to test a lot of messages to increase turnout among Latinos, we know we're trying to battle back on this understanding among Latinos that, hey, why, why are you engaging in the political system? Why should we vote? We know the system doesn't want us. Or doesn't value us. And I think that underlying kind of uh, ideology or lack that you matter, that obviously has huge implications into turnout, potentially being more likely to believe what you hear on social media or the radio, if it's misinformation, etc. So I think that's an important point. I'm glad you brought it up.
0: Yeah, no, this is really great so far because I think it's really unpacking that uh, perception of these communities being very homogenous when it comes to their political opinions and backgrounds. Nora, I want to pivot to you because you recently published a piece for Free Press where you cite several instances of misinformation, disinformation targeted at Latinx voters concerning both the census and voting processes. Walk us through some of that and, and really help us understand, you know, segueing from what Gabe talked about, how this also factors into sort of the voter suppression, right, that we often see among uh, Latino community uh, members.
2: Sure. Well, it's so great to be here. And Gabe, as you're talking, you know, I was just sitting here sort of nodding, thinking about what the existential problem is facing us and that it is not unique to Latinos. And that is really the the feeling that disinformation gives us, that we don't matter, that our voice or our vote or our presence is irrelevant. And that's what's been happening for the last several years to communities across identity. I think in the last several years, there's been a very positive crack opening um, in discussion and awareness around the ways that specific communities are targeted. And I I still somehow want to hold the fact that we are all being targeted in both obvious and insidious ways. And it makes it then just so difficult to make broad generalizations about what content reaches each of us. Because the primary pathway that we are each getting information is actually through social media. The majority of Americans, at least in the United States now, are using social media as that gateway to information. And so what that means is it's really only our social media platforms that know fully how people are laser-like targeted with what content. That being said, I do think that there are some things we, we know. Regarding the census, we know that fear was a really big motivating factor for disinformation actors and that the goal was to give Latinos, and particularly those that might want to engage and take part in the census, give them the feeling that if they participated, there could be legal consequences, such as if you, uh, a common narrative we saw was um, Latinos were told if you participate in the census, your address will then be added to a database um, for various law enforcement agencies to keep track of. That, if I got that as someone who is an undocumented person here in the United States, what would I believe? I could make a host of them conclusions, most of them leading me probably to the likely scenario of not participating or taking part in the census. So that kind of fear of X, Y, or Z was a major motivating factor during this sort of census period. And then during the 2020 election, and now what we're seeing in 2022, are of such a wide range of narratives. Um, For example, we see stories about voting and elections, We see stories about Biden now and the economy, that right-wing Latino accounts, for example, are saying that Biden is to blame for inflation, that Democrats are um, now so horrific as an entire party that Latinos are leaving en masse from the Democratic Party, that immigration is a major issue, which is an interesting one because it creates wedges within the Latino community. All of these are so unique in the way that they then reach individual readers and users and infiltrate our communities. And so even in your question, Nicole, I just sort of always want to take time and space and think about who's getting this, who's seeing it, how are they reacting? How are they then sharing something out? I'll take one single example for you. Let's take the example that Latinos are leaving the left, leaving the Democratic Party. On the one hand, maybe there's a kernel of truth in that. As so much of disinformation has kernels of truth, these sort of moments or inflections of credibility, there may be real Latinos who have said publicly, either because they are well-known or in their own communities, they talk about concerns with one party or another the departure of a single person or a set of people can then get sort of stretched. And so that the coverage or even the social media rhetoric becomes so reduced down to the fact that one party is this and, you know, we are grateful as a community then for conservative values. Well, what that does is it stokes then the readers, the users, the people who soak it up and are thinking then questioning and being curious about Maybe I should consider that. I wonder if my community, people who look like me, talk like me, have dialects or come from countries like me or my parents, maybe I need to now reconsider. And so... When the census stoked and the sort of disinformation around the census stoked fear, I think a lot of the disinformation that we've seen over the last several years around the electoral and civic engagement process of democracy has targeted Latinos to make them somehow doubt that these institutions can be trusted. And that is not unique to Latinos. The narratives may be crafted for Latino and super community-specific vulnerabilities, but that is a pervasive, and I would say symptom of the entire endemic that we see when it comes to disinformation targeting people to feel doubt around democratic values. Yeah, you know, I'm... uh...
0: Woo, I'm over here and I've got <laughs> all this off my mind. I'm trying to figure out how to unpack it myself. So I think I'm hearing a couple of things, right? I mean, first and foremost, there is this uh, use of disinformation and misinformation in the same type of traditional tactical ways that we've seen it used for voter suppression, right? And particularly on social media, where we see sort of the amplification of these messages through the use of these algorithms and how different... Um, uh, campaign structure, polarization and support that. I, I mean, I got something today, I don't even think it was for my house, but it was um, something that basically critiqued Biden's racial equity strategy and basically yes. was a flyer. I got that today, I'm like, don't you know I'm black? Right? <laughs> Why am I getting this, right? But I got that today and it was like, just all the words were bold and bright and you know, racial equity is destroying the country kind of deal. But I can imagine, like my question for both of you, for Latinos who come to the United States in search of the same type of equitable aspirations that most people, you know, who are immigrants in this country, want to aspire to, particularly under previous administrations that have been very supportive, right, of of dream makers in this country, there has to be some confusion too, right, when it comes to the identity of Latinos in the electoral process that allows for this misinformation to pull them in both directions. So Nora, I'll start with you and then I'll go to Gabe. Like, is there a tension too between like, like you said, like a failure to trust in our political institutions while at the same time aspiring to have confidence that it's gonna work because of those aspirational goals that people have when they come to this country?
2: That is, to me, one of the ultimate questions. And how do then we as change makers and advocates work with communities that are suffering from this very weird, I would say almost oxymoronic tension within themselves. And when it comes to how they form their epistemic values, not a word that I would use with people who aren't entrenched in disinformation studies. I I think that's the question. And what's so interesting, when you mentioned the example that you were targeted for, you know, with a racial equity kind of false uh, propaganda, I would call it propaganda more than anything. It really shows us that the, the far right divisive agenda is to separate people, that, you know, examples from both traditional and social media are to tear inter-identity, politic, and relationships apart, because we are actually stronger together. And when both Black, Latino, AAPI, Native communities are torn from believing that we have to create these coalitions together, that helps further the far-right divisive agenda. And when Latino communities within themselves are divided between, let's say, a younger swath of uh, generations who grew up here, who speak English primarily and can wrestle with the tension you describe versus non-English speaking users who are maybe only in ecosystems that have radio in Spanish, that are on WhatsApp or not on social media at all, those are tensions playing out across these generations and within the communities. And what it does is that furthers also the divisive agenda because it's really hard to have these conversations. I'm an expert on this and I find it so incredibly difficult to talk through what people go through, how they come to form, what their values and beliefs are. And then it's even harder to talk with them about Changing those or asking questions to help move people towards reason, curiosity, instead of something that's more dark, that really underpins why they don't want to engage in this big thing we call democracy. Yeah. Gabe, you want to jump in on that?
1: Yeah, I appreciate the, the great comments. Nora doesn't uh, allow me a lot of room to push a lot of knowledge board because <laughs> you covered it so well. But a a couple of points I want to make is, is one, Nicole, in terms of your original question, um, when we think about the Latino population and internal variation on things like personal efficacy, right? do you think you can make a difference in the political system or in your community or external efficacy, trust in the system? Latino immigrants actually score higher than U.S.-born Latinos and actually score higher on those dimensions than just about any other Americans. So they come to the country really with a, a bright eye towards the values of democracy, engaging in the democratic process to improve outcomes. And so the fact that they're being targeted primarily in Spanish with a lot of misinformation, undercutting those beliefs is scary, right? Because in many ways, Latino immigrants are part of that population that's fueling trust. And so if that gets eradicated, I think that has bigger notions for normative values like democracy uh, than anything else, right? So that's one important, I think, piece to think about in terms of how these things operate and I think uh, maybe we talk about immigration as an example of, of what Nora's talking about, that undercutting of, of a sense of cohesion or solidarity. Remember when I started at the top and said back in, in like the Obama years, you see like 80%, 78% Democratic vote share among Latinos. A lot of that was because of an underlying sense of linked fate or group consciousness. These concepts are social scientists use to basically talk about an underlying sense of cohesion or community. You know, that might be starting to diminish a bit. And part of that is, I think, as Nora nailed, the fact that a lot of this misinformation is aimed at dividing communities. And so that big, powerful racial identity that can be a strong motivator for turnout, if that starts to diminish, I think, again, that has bigger challenges for normative things like the strength of our democracy. So it really is something important that we have to pay close attention to. This
0: this brings me to a really important point, Gabe. I'll start with you and then I'll jump over to Nora. Nora where do Spanish-speaking communities go for their media, right? And what types of social media networks are the Spanish-speaking communities most likely to have more trust in? You know what I mean? Because at the end of the day, and Nora, I already know she knows, a lot of this has to do with the authenticity of the media networks and, and channels that people of color have access to that can help rectify or correct course when it comes to misinformation. So Gabe, help me understand that because you both come have different perspectives. You're out there, you know, in the New Mexico side, right? Mm-hmm. And Norva sort of lives on this East Coast, you know, New York, D.C. side. So I'm curious from both of you, where are we finding Spanish media and what does that landscape look like?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I'll I'll start with with just pulling what we're seeing in in the survey research space. Um, You you might imagine this time of year, we're asking Latino voters almost every day in a survey, you know, where are you getting your political information from? So we have some some fresh data to reference. Uh, But in general, you know, the websites and the apps more popular with Latinos in the U.S. and other groups make them essentially more susceptible to exposure to misinformation and unfortunately sharing with others in their network. Uh, Latinos tend to spend more time on social media and messaging services, where unfortunately, there's just not a whole lot of control of of the the content and the, the accuracy of information, which can go viral. So we're talking about Instagram, Snapchat whatsapp telegram discord twitter etc and i want to identify youtube as a particularly challenging source of information Um, in the latest uh national association of latino elected officials tracker poll uh they're, they're basically surveying something like 500 voters every week so they're they're really got a, a fine tooth uh, comb if you will uh, on the latino electorate they identified that youtube was the most commonly uh, cited source of information for latinos with Basically, half the sample reporting that they use it very often. And I identify that because a lot of the experts in this space, like Nora, have identified that uh, YouTube, unfortunately, tends to have a disproportionate range of, of misinformation yep, and sometimes yeah. very biased and conspiracy-based content. One estimate I read in prep for this discussion estimated that 25 or 25 to 28 percent of all the content Latinos see on places like YouTube is fraught with bias and conspiracy-based platforms. So I think that's a big challenge for us is just where Latinos get their information tends to be a little bit more problematic in this space of it not being true or accurate.
0: And Nora, I want you to add on to that space in terms of social media landscape, but you and I you know, know that the other forms of media channels, radio, broadcast, television, also contribute to this overall landscape. Where are people getting their news? Where else are they going?
2: I don't want to act like I know, <laughs> I think we we don't actually know where everyone gets their news um, across communities and when I in my sort of former media literacy and disinformation defense work years ago I would ask Spanish speaking uh, partners, you know, where do you get your news, where do you get information. And there were very little trends I could point to. There were, I think, younger Spanish speakers who were on social media and who absolutely track along what Gabe has said with YouTube and other uh, very cutting edge platforms, but Then there's sort of the, you know, I'm going to say in Spanish, the tia, the woman who like goes to the grocery store and picks something up and talks to the guy who works at, I'm going to use an East Coast language term now, bodega, Um, though I don't want to divide us between East and West Coast because I am from LA and that Mexican goes deep. So, uh, you know, (laughs) we're we're all together here. We're not dividing, (laughs) you know, in the spirit of the conversation. So you, you have the Tia who goes over to a bodega and talks with someone. And, you know, the tiniest type of comment is what I have found. Someone could say, well, I didn't get the vaccine because I heard this or just I heard something from another person who felt so sick that then they didn't want to you know, get the, the second booster, let's say, or the second shot. And that single comment can be really what precipitates a whole spiral for someone. And then that person shares it. And so there's really kind of an in, intra-community dialogue that happens within a lot of the Spanish-speaking communities I've worked with. But I'm never prepared to say that there are large trends we can point to, especially when it comes to news consumption, because people are getting so- stuff and soaking things up from a lot of different places. One of the things I would point out, though, is that in the middle of all of that, and in answering your question, we have to kind of show examples of the worst, most toxic or misleading stuff on social media by only point- pointing to individual pieces of content. That's a lot of what my work has been for years, is showing social media, for for example, the discrepancies in their enforcement of Spanish language disinformation. I'll go to a social media company, Meta is an example, and I'll say, look, you took this post down in English. Why is it still up in Spanish? That doesn't mean everyone who speaks Spanish in a community is seeing it, but it does pose the question of who is seeing it? How many people have seen it? Why is it staying up then for two, three, 10, 11 months? And unfortunately, we are in the position in our civil rights activist groups of having to go to these companies to say, here is one piece of content. Why is this up? That is, frankly, I think a -a whack-a-mole style of treating what is a pervasive problem, not just because posts can be full on lies, but because there is a whole ecosystem of questionable, and I would almost say low quality information. So at best, you might get a piece of information someone sees in Spanish that provides a little bit of context. But so much of what we're seeing is not just the kind of disinformation and outright lies, but something else, something adjacent, a kind of cousin to that, where there's just enough doubt to then make people question. And whether that is on social media or network television, because trust me, I always want the footnotes and I never get them from my network television shows. There is always a kind of reduction down to something beyond fact that is fact adjacent.
0: You know, I'm thinking about what you said, right? And for both of you, I mean, I think part of the challenge is we live in a country where English still is perceived as a dominant language despite the fact that we're seeing these demographic shifts so it is troublesome nor like what you're talking about where you can have the same content in Spanish stay up it's almost like an oversight right as if it doesn't matter it goes back to your both of your comments about not mattering I mean the question is do we expect tech companies to do the right thing or how do Community Advocates sort of do the right thing are we seeing within the Latino community different types of messaging to come back that misinformation or disinformation? Or are we basically trying to do, you know, one thing at a time in terms of tackling different bits and bytes of content? Gabe, I'll I'll go to you first. Like, are we just seeing like um, this movement to, to combat this on the community side? Or are we just at the helm of tech companies and we all just still attributes of what their companies want to profit off of?
1: Yeah, I'll start. Circling back on the last question, if I can, just to emphasize that I think we need to be broader in terms of who we try to hold accountable. And one form of more traditional media that's a huge problem is Spanish language radio. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of that is because Latinos, you know, when we think about if a a, a consultant asks me, like, what's the most efficient and inexpensive way to reach Latino voters? I always say Spanish language radio because it has huge saturation across the Latino community. And unfortunately, just like we're talking about in digital media, Spanish language media outlets offer little to no response to misinformation, which really allows these conspiracy theories to spread and grow and and cause all these major challenges we've been talking about. And I use Spanish language media as an example of how at the higher level, right, if we're thinking about the, the top levels of ownership, how that can change things. I'm hopeful that, at least in the context of Spanish language radio Um, One of my colleagues, Stephanie Valencia and her partners, uh, they're calling themselves Latino Media Network. They just bought up like 18 of the biggest major Spanish language radio stations across the country. And I have to trust when they say one of their goals is to try to navigate the ocean of misinformation that exists in our society today and do a much better job policing it because they realize the context of what's happening. So I think that's a good example of, you know, at, at some level, uh, pushing for a little bit more Latino representation at the highest levels of ownership, boards, et cetera, over all these different companies that control a lot of the information that we have access to. So I think that's one potential broader solution um, at the more, you know, ground level of, of just consumers, uh, Latinos, like everybody else, I think are a little bit overwhelmed and they're not sure exactly like, hey, I saw this. Um, On my social media platform, it looks like it came from a friend or family member, which is a big reason why there's so much trust in this information among Latinos, right? We're a community where whenever we test most trusted messengers, it's always friends and family, right? So if that's coming from some distrustful source, whether it's YouTube, Facebook, you name it in terms of platform, if it reaches you from your tia, as Nora explained, you're going to trust that information (laughs) and you're probably not going to go do the legwork. To figure out that it came from somewhere else. So unfortunately, we do have to rely on these companies to basically, in my opinion, just do the same level of investment on trying to correct information in Spanish as you do in English. That would be a huge start. But unfortunately, we're like light years away from seeing equality just in that really basic dimension of just trying to do a better job of making sure the information isn't overtly biased.
0: Yeah. Nora?
2: I worry you're gonna get my existential, maybe corny uh, <laughs> response here. But it's uh, you okay. Know, it's okay. My background is and, and training for many years was as a civil rights lawyer. You know, I I started my career in Atlanta, um, you know, worked in the South, marched with John Lewis so many times, uh, and he would call me Attorney Nora and he would remind me, he would say, you know, these are generational problems. Um, And I feel that about disinformation. It is a symptom of a much larger attack on the attempt for us to gain and live as agents of our lives. And for particularly communities that have been oppressed, silenced, um, targeted, Because of our identity, this is generations of work ahead of us that many have contributed to and fought for. So I I look now at the landscape of what's ahead of us, and I I think we have to um, feel and live as if fighting for our own agency requires fighting for others' agency and vice versa. That as much as Nicole and the Black community, if I can be that reductive, is dealing with a certain type of micro-targeting and discrimination online, we have to assume that there are ways that it is happening in other communities. And I feel that with Latinos, the defensive work we are doing is particularly difficult because of where immigrants come from and their distrust of democratic regimes, that there is no possibility of democracy in practice. I think that is a particular vulnerability we see with, um, immigrants from Latin America and Central America. And it's just we haven't said it in this conversation, I realized, and it is so, so hard to overcome. And yet we have to try. So that's what we do at Free Press. That's what I do um, every day, trying to think about how do we build um coalitions how do we build inter identity coalitions and at the same time how do we create a record of the harms and the impact of real people how are social media platforms how are disinformation narratives and bad actor campaigns affecting real people in real ways these are not abstract threats Um, these are things that will prevent people from voting That will and have prevented people from filling out the census. The the impact is real. And I think more than anything, we have to task ourselves with making clear what those threats and harms are. And then we have to be a big enough, broad enough coalition that cannot be ignored. So that when we come to Congress, when we come to social media companies, all of the entities and sectors that might be too big to listen to us, we should be and have to be in a position where they do.
0: Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about, and and Nora, I want to make sure you do a shout, the Disinfo Defense League that you launched at Free Press. Tell us a little bit more about that effort that you launched in 2021 that centers BIPOC voices in the digital equity
2: fight. Well, you're giving me way too much credit, Nicole, because I did not (laughs) launch it alone, Um, but I I love that. Uh, I I have to correct it. Um, You know, the Disinfo Defense League is a network of over 200 organizations around the country led by and centering communities of color. We are incredibly inter-identity and um, interwoven in the work we are doing. And in 2021, Knowing that the 2020 elections had so uh, affected communities of color across various groups, including Asian American, other Pacific Island, uh, Black, Native, and other tribal communities, and Latin and Spanish speaking, we tried to think about what systemic reforms could be to blunt the spread and impact of disinformation and other malign forces, because it isn't just disinformation, it's also hate, it's extremism. And so we've put together a policy platform, and that is an attempt to really create reforms that grassroots groups can come engage with Congress and other federal and international bodies around. Our attempt is to, I think, be sort of a, I want to say, infrastructure building and connective tissue entity to help groups that have never engaged on these issues and yet whose voices are essential for massive change to enter spaces they never have. And so it is in no way patronizing. It is the work that I think we have to do if we are really going to move towards an equitable, multiracial democracy. And it's really exciting. We, uh, you know, we engage with Congress. I-, I won't spend too much time more. I know we're we're wrapping up here, but it is the work that fuels me, that makes me excited about how change conversations need to have those individual voices. People who do go to the bodega, who um, never knew what the FTC stands for, and yet now are aware that my data is being collected and sold and I'm not being made aware of that. Maybe I should come engage with something like the FTC. Um, These are really um, interesting muscle building processes and they take a long time. We move at the pace of trust, but it is a process that has to happen and it's really exciting to see all of the power that is building.
0: Yeah, and for those of you that are like, okay, I don't know what the FTC is, Federal Trade Commission, just making sure. Listen, Gabe, I'm going to give you the last word on this. I I could keep both of you here forever because I don't think we do enough diving deep into the heterogeneity of the Latino community. So I thank you very much for uh, being here. And I'm going to have you come back. And Gabe, I kind of want to lean on you as as last word, because I know at the end of the day, it all goes back to these generational differences, right? And the young people, they use this more. They may actually also be the ones telling Tia what they think is the issue. And, you know, just like uh, Black American kids, they may also be staying home from the polls because they're losing confidence in our democracy. What needs to be done at the level of young people, uh, maybe starting in school, right, In, in early elementary school, to help the Latino community have the right champions going forward that can help quell some of this misinformation?
1: No, I appreciate the, the conversation. Learned a ton already from Nora. That's been amazing. Uh, so I look forward to coming back. And I, I think that's a great way to, to close out this conversation because if you look at the landscape on potential solutions to this challenge, uh, many states have really tried to look at the future uh, by infusing cash from the state level into media literacy programs, going you know as low as middle school and high school levels uh, to try to basically make sure that our young people have the skill set to be better consumers of of digital information right and i think that the way you framed it is key right aiming with young people hopefully after a sense of one generation we'll see a significant improvement in the ability for consumers to be able to sift through the real from the fake right so i think aiming at the youth and latinos are a key population to aim at, just because I noted at the top, there are 15 youngers in me- median age than whites. So if you look at most urban school districts, right, we're talking about Latinos and other communities of color who are predominantly in that population. And I, I'm an internal optimist, so I'll close with a positive, you know, looking at internal variation across the Latino community. Uh, Latinos, according to all the literature on this subject, are much more likely to actually do a little bit of research, diversify where they're getting their political information from, try to verify whether or not what they read is accurate. So Latinas are getting it. Folks like Nora and others in our community are doing the right thing as consumers to be better at this. And hopefully they're helping to infuse uh, the rest of their networks to be better citizens in this regard. And hopefully, right, more knuckleheads like myself, us Latino males need to get with it and take the same level of care uh, in the information that we receive as Latinas do. And maybe we'll see a significant difference next election cycle.
0: You know, I, I love that comment because there is, across all communities, this thing, Gabe, sorry about this, but with women, you win. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I think that uh, the fact that Latino women are doing the same thing, that Black women are doing and uh, indigenous women are doing and women of Asian descent are doing. It tells you that, you know, with women at your side, you actually can win. This has been such an interesting conversation. I think it speaks to a lot of things. We are encroaching upon a 2020 midterm election that is turning out to be very contentious. And as we have discussed on this podcast where latinas fall when it comes to the vote is going to matter particularly women so i think this is a conversation we need to continue to have and it'd be interesting coming out of this election to have you both come back to see just how well we did with the type of misinformation and disinformation and the spanish language media channels that people had to make the appropriate decisions we're brookings we're nonpartisan, apolitical We're interested in the implications of not having an inclusive ecosystem uh, where all voices are heard and respected. And going back to what you both said, where all people matter, particularly Latina community, they matter. So thank you so much, Gabe and Nora. This was great.
2: Thank you so much, Nicole. You can't do this to me and have and invite me back on because then I'll have to say yes. I can't say no to you. <laughs> you better uh, say yes. <laughs> oh, it was, it was so wonderful to talk with you both.
0: <laughs> yeah, it was full. And Gabe, thank you so much for always being there for me. I really appreciate being your colleague.
1: Oh, no, it's my pleasure. Uh, thanks for putting this together. Putting me alongside an expert like Nora is amazing. Um, and you framed the conversation great with the context of the questions that you asked. So if you ask me to come back, I'll be there. Thank you.
0: Well, listen, folks, this has been another episode of Tech Tank where conversations around tech and telecom are done in palatable bits, not bytes. Please follow this and other issues on our Tech Tank newsletter. I am Nicole Turner-Lee, Senior Fellow and Director of the Center for Technology Innovation at the Brookings Institution. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening to Tech Tank, a series of roundtable discussions and interviews with technology experts and policymakers. For more conversations like this, Subscribe to the podcast and sign up to receive the Tech Tank newsletter for more research and analysis from the Center for Technology Innovation at Brookings.